Welcome to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. If you have questions from our study, contact me at vbvpodcast at gmail.com. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast through whatever platform you use to listen and share it with others also. Acts 19, 11 through 20. Acts 19, beginning in verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified." And many who had believed came, confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. In our last study, we saw the shift in Paul's ministry in Ephesus from the Ephesian synagogue which by and large rejected his preaching, to a lecture hall which he was able to secure for use in preaching and teaching at certain points of time every day. Luke informs us that this ministry was both long and fruitful. Acts 19.10 says that he remained in Ephesus two years, and that in that span of time, all Asia, meaning all of the major regions of Asia Minor, or what we would today call Turkey, heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, both Jews and Greeks. And thus we learn that Paul did not reject the Jews as a whole, not in any ethnic sense, but rather he turned away from the synagogue, and in this new venue had an opportunity to reach a broader audience than merely the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. We considered how this region-wide work might have taken place possibly through reaching out to travelers who would come to Ephesus on religious pilgrimage or business and then return home with their newfound faith in Christ, or possibly by Paul training up evangelists who he then sent out into the broader countryside while he remained with the congregation here, and maybe a mixture of the two. That last one has strong support from a wide range of New Testament texts. Yet regardless of which of these methods Paul used, he focused a great deal of his attention on this church and this community, perhaps more so than any other single congregation or community where the book of Acts records him ministering. In Acts 19, 11-20, we have a glimpse into the sort of things which took place during this ministry and contributed to its success. Recall that this chapter opened with an amazing event in the lives of certain Jewish believers who received the gifts of the Holy Spirit through Paul's hands and not only prophesied but also spoke in tongues. 
which we have noted was a special sign for the Jews to notify them that the Messianic kingdom had been established. This brought a large number of people into full confirmation in the Christian faith. But unfortunately, that narrative was followed by the tragic rejection of the gospel by the synagogue which forced Paul's withdrawal. In these texts, we will see a similar pattern in which the Gentile community receives its own sign from God, validating the lordship of Jesus and resulting in a mixed response of joyful submission and antagonistic rejection. Verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. The phrase unusual miracles might seem like a tautology. We would hardly be able to imagine a common or everyday miracle, but the idea is that some miracles were more clearly and undeniably manifestations of divine power, defying any other explanation. We might keep that in mind when we think of certain events which transpire today, seemingly in response to prayer, and we wonder if they should be considered miracles or acts of God or not, since there might be some small shred of possibility that it came about some other way than God's direct imposition. God has worked, however, in many different ways, and sometimes his work was more subtle, and sometimes it was very bold and attention-getting. These miracles, which involved spiritual power being communicated through the medium of cloths that Paul would have used in connection with his tent-making business, were not, however, without precedent. Recall that Peter had earlier in his own ministry experienced a time of such intense power of the Spirit in him that if his shadow passed over a sick person, they would recover, Acts 5, 15-16. Earlier than this, a woman was healed who touched the fringe or the hem of Jesus' garment, Matthew 9, 20 and 21. And even earlier than this, the Old Testament told of a time when a dead body was raised to life because it came into contact with the bones of the prophet Elisha. 2 Kings 13.21 But this precedent did not make the miracles any less remarkable. It only served to connect the ministry of Paul with those other renowned ministers of God. And the reason for such amazing manifestations was likely due to the extreme prevalence of sorcery in this city, which is discussed later in this very text. These people were used to seeing things that looked like wonders and they had been greatly deceived. It would take something extreme to impress them and cause them to think of Paul in a way that exceeded the other religious teachers who inundated the community. Luke notes at the end of this statement that Paul's cloths were not only found effective for healing diseases, but also for driving away evil spirits, allowing for a transition to the next scene, in which we find that some of those who had previously rejected Paul were trying to capitalize off his obvious authority from God. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. This is a striking point that should not be missed, as the narrative will make clear 
These were not believing Jews. They were not disciples of Christ and even attributed the name of Jesus to Paul. But they knew that the power in the name of Jesus was real. And this makes their rejection of Paul's preaching all the more damning and reminds us of the Jewish leaders who similarly blasphemed the Holy Spirit to avoid accepting Christ during his own ministry in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. The descriptions of the attempted exorcism in this text, though brief, align with extra-biblical testimony of exorcism techniques which have been preserved on a magical text written on papyrus in the Coptic language, now in Paris, which records verbal formulas to be used in casting out demons. And it shows that the exorcists would often pile on the names of gods and great men to invoke as much power as possible in support of their efforts. Whether or not this sort of ritual ever had any real impact on a demonized person, uh, I'm not sure, but there were evidently some cases of successful exorcism by people who did not have the power of God working in them. They only had a natural means. In 1 Samuel 16, 13 through 23, the Bible says that when King Saul was afflicted by a distressing or terrorizing spirit, which certainly appears to be a demon and had the impact on Saul commonly associated with demonic possession, young David would be called in to play the harp and evidently the music would cause the spirit to leave for a time. The book of Tobit, which was written in the 3rd century B.C., recounts the story of the angel Raphael instructing Tobit on how to cast a demon out of a possessed person by taking a fish's liver and heart into the presence of a possessed man or woman and putting the organ flesh on the embers of incense. He says, an odor will be given off and the demon will smell it and flee, Tobit 6, 8 and 17 through 18. The story goes on to describe Tobit carrying out these instructions and successfully casting out the demon who fled to Egypt, where it was apprehended and bound by one of God's angels. In Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews, Book 8, Chapter 2, verses 45 through 48, the Jewish historian says this of King Solomon in regard to his knowledge of plants and trees. God also enabled him to learn that skill which expels demons which is a science useful and sanative to men. He composed such incantations also by which distempers are alleviated, and he left behind him the manner of using exorcisms by which they drive away demons so that they never return. And this method of cure is of great force unto this day. Josephus continues, For I have seen a certain man of my own country, whose name is Eliezer, releasing people that were demonical in the presence of Vespasian and his sons and his captains and the whole multitude of his soldiers. The manner of the cure was this. He put a ring that had a root of one of those sorts mentioned by Solomon to the nostrils of the demoniac, after which he drew out the demon through his nostrils. And when the man fell down immediately, he abjured him to return into him no more making still mention of Solomon and reciting the incantations which he had composed. And when Eliezer would persuade and demonstrate the spectators that he had such power, 
he set a little way off a cup or a basin full of water and commanded the demon as he went out of the man to overturn it and thereby to let the spectators know that it had indeed left the man. At Qumran, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were found certain songs and prayers to be used in exorcism rituals, and these were ascribed to David and Solomon as their composers. Even the ancient Christian Justin Martyr confessed that certain Jews had been able to drive out demons by invoking the name of Abraham. Now what to make of all these claims and suggestions is debatable. But Jesus, when defending himself against the accusation that he could not have cast out demons unless he was in league with the devil, made as one of his arguments in Matthew twelve twenty seven, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. This seems to indicate that there were, at least at times, successful exorcisms performed by the Jews apart from the exercise of real divine authority. But I think we can think of it comparable to a physician's powers in contrast to the miraculous authority of Christ and his apostles over disease. Sometimes physicians could help the sick to recover, but it took time and there was always a risk of failure. Yet when the power of Christ was involved, healing was immediate or at least very quick and always successful. Similarly, it is possible that the Jewish exorcists who arose prior to the time of Christ developed methods for making the situation so obnoxious to the demon that if it was a weak spirit, they could successfully drive it out. However, there were some that proved impervious to anything but the mighty word of the Son of God or one of his ambassadors, and when they spoke, the demon fled immediately. Such was the case here. We are unsure of the precise size of this party. There are two groups mentioned, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists and also the seven sons of Sceva. But this would be at least nine men, perhaps more. The naming of the seven sons indicates that they were particularly renowned as successful and powerful in this craft. The text indicates that they all came together to confront one particularly powerful demoniac, and perhaps sensing that their regular methods would not be effective in this situation, they tried to invoke the Jesus whom Paul preaches. This should not be compared to the man who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but not following in his company in Mark 9, 38-40. That man was by all accounts a true believer in the Messiahship of Jesus. These men were simply trying to gain power from his name. Verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Indeed, Christ and those who are in Christ are renowned and feared by the devil and his legions. But Satan has no fear of mere mortals." whom he has so often deceived and found it so easy to manipulate, much less to throw down if they come against him in their own might and power. As Luther said, on earth is not his equal. But as John the Apostle said, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Verse 17. 
This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. It is a fascinating thing. We are not told whether Paul eventually cast out this powerful demon who shamed the Jewish exorcists, but Luke's point is that there was an obvious contrast in Ephesus, evident to everyone who lived there, between the power of Christ's servants and the power of those who were not his servants. Through the magnification of the name of the Lord Jesus, people came to believe in him. It has been a consistent scene throughout Acts. Christ is extolled, and his power is displayed, and the apostles do not have to beg and plead with sinners to come and give their lives to him. They do not have to threaten hell or promise heaven. When the power and glory of Jesus is displayed, the people come and ask, what must we do? Though in this case, the appropriate response was rather obvious. Verse 18, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Some suggest that this was no ordinary confession or mere act of contrition and renunciation of a past life. There are some ancient magical texts which indicate that the power of certain rituals and incantations was in the secrecy of them, that they were known only to the initiates of the cults that possessed them. So to confess and tell them would render them powerless. Similarly, there are some who see the burning of an occult item, such as a spell book, as the only proper way to dispose of it so as to banish the dark powers associated with it. If this was the background of these actions, the text does not seem to make it obvious. But confession and repentance have been fairly common hallmarks of Christian conversion throughout all of Acts so far. In this case, the sincerity of their repentance was demonstrated in the magnitude of the sacrifice they made to renounce forever their former conduct. Verse 20, And they counted up the value of them, that is, the books they had burned, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. This was equivalent to 50,000 days' wages. But they would not risk the proliferation of the sorcery and deception from which Christ had freed them and called them. The reign of Christ was worth more than great wealth. That's true discipleship. And now even in this citadel of Satan, even after the Jewish Messiah was rejected by the synagogue of his own people, his kingdom is spreading and he is receiving the nations as his inheritance. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.